Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad to see that you are here. Uh, you know, you talk about Jesus and some people show up. You talk about sex and everybody shows up. So thanks for being here. Glad to see that you're around as we begin this series, as you've heard, called God and Sexuality. Uh, we are here as a church to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. That's what Jesus has called us to be and do. And if you've been here for a few weeks, you, th- you were thinking, oh, I thought we were done with that series. No, this lays the foundation uh, for this series as well as beyond because we're also here to be and make disciples of Jesus. That that's why we're here. And so with that being said, uh, there's some ground rules that's different for this series that I, I wanna encourage you to join me in. Uh, first, uh, parents, you've heard this two or three times. This is a PG-13 series, and yes, we're gonna go there even today. So you can still check in your child if you need to, if that's helpful, but again, we wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, secondly, is uh, wanna encourage you to not do amens or clapping during this series because we wanna make sure that we're not taking sides or unintentionally alienating those around us as we go through this. Uh, Thirdly, I need to implore you, be here for all four weeks. Unlike other series, this is a conversation that starts and continues and builds and creates as we go through all four weeks. So if you're gone for one or two of the weeks, you're gonna miss 50% of the conversation. If you pop in and out, you're gonna be like, I'm a little confused on what we're hitting or why we're hitting. And so unlike other series, we're going through all four weeks of this together. So try as best you can not to miss any part of these next four weeks. Uh, Lastly, Kelly, who'll be speaking next week, he's our Riverside campus pastor, and I aren't gonna be perfect. Shocking. And so we're gonna say some things, undoubtedly, that may ruffle some of your feathers. And when that happens, here's gonna be my challenge and encouragement for you. Seek clarification uh, instead of cancel. Don't just get mad, because believe it or not, in 35 minutes or less, I can't give everything in all details and all layers. So you might be like, okay, I heard you say this. Is that what you mean? I know that's a little foreign in our culture. We hear sound bites and we just kind of explode. And so I'm just gonna encourage you to kind of press into that. Uh, Also, uh, I'm gonna ask you to potentially hold your feedback, your questions, and yes, even your criticisms until the end of the series. Because some of the questions that you may have, you'd be like, but Dan, what about? And we're like, yeah, that's a great question next week. Well, what about? Good question, two weeks from now. And so that's where we're layering all of this together. Now, here's what I also know. Uh, Some of you are coming here uh, just a little anxious and a little nervous, and I'm going to be honest, first time that I felt the same way in uh, a little while, but some of you are a little anxious because you're not sure what we're going to say, and that can bring up some anxiety. Others of you are anxious because you're actually afraid of what we're going to say, and still others of you are a little anxious because you're afraid of what we won't say. And so with all of that, let's go on this journey together and cast our anxiety upon him. So let's just join him in prayer. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for today. I thank you for already the last two services, and I pray you'll be with this one, that your word would speak, that I would get out of the way, that everyone who is watching online or in the room would just simply pray to you, God, speak. We are listening. So we love you and we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, as a reminder... We are filled as a church with imperfect people trying to focus on a perfect God by bringing glory to Jesus and trying to emulate and follow him. In fact, in the Bible's book of John, the author John, who followed Jesus for over three years, has a description for Jesus. Two words, 
that are essential, not just for the series, but essential for us understanding who Jesus is and understanding what we're supposed to be doing and emulating him. In John chapter one, verse 14, he says this, the word, which is Jesus, became flesh, human, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. It's interesting of any description that John could give God in human form, he gives two words, grace and truth. You see, through Jesus, we have the privilege of embracing and sharing this grace as well as the truth. But we need to understand what these words mean if we're going to emulate and follow and understand what Jesus was doing. Grace, the word literally means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor is getting what you don't deserve. It also means unconditional love. And so grace is demonstrated, it's lived out through things like empathy, compassion, a sense of belonging before you have to behave or even believe. In other words, God loves you no matter what. This is his grace, that he died for you and me while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God. He says, this is my grace for you. Whether you receive it or not, this is what I'm going to bring to you. Now, what's fascinating is that in Jesus' time, the religious leaders looked at Jesus in his grace and they criticized him. They called him friend of sinners, as if that was a derogatory term. He hung out with tax collectors. They were notorious because they stole from their own people under Roman occupation rule. He uh, uh, went and had his feet washed by a prostitute. And the religious leaders are like, if he actually knew who was washing his feet, he would be disgusted. He would not allow this thing to happen. And yet every single time, if you study the life of Jesus, when he was dealing with those far from God, he always 100% of the time, led with grace. Then he got to truth. But every single time, now it's different with the religious people. With the religious leaders, uh, he was pretty brutal, you know, at times. And uh, the apostle Paul did the same thing. He wrote to churches. So there may be some brutal things when it comes to the truth, but we always learn from Paul and every single time that Jesus encountered those far from him, and whether they demonized him, criticized him, didn't understand him, he led with grace. Now, John's description doesn't end with grace. He says grace and truth. Now, this is the best description I could come up with for the Bible's understanding of what truth is, which is a dependable, trustworthy reflection of reality according to God as revealed to the person of Jesus Christ. That is what biblical truth is. In fact, Jesus has a conversation before he's gonna be crucified with one of the Roman leaders named Pilate. And in this conversation, Pilate asked Jesus, so you're a king? Jesus responded, you say that I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. To which Pilate says, what is truth? And that's the question of our day. What is truth? In fact, for a lot of people, Christians are not, A lot of us base our truth based on how we feel or based on our experiences. So we base our truth based on, well, this is what I feel about a certain thing, a certain topic, a certain uh, opinion, or based on this is my experience and that informs my truth. 
And, and let me, let me uh, just gracefully challenge that assumption that's being pushed uh, across all our culture, especially in the United States today. Truth is not determined solely by my emotions or personal experience. It can inform, it can be part of, but it can't be solely. Let me give you four or five examples because this sets the stage not only for this message but their entire series and this is critical for us to understand. Let's pretend you as a child come across a neighbor's dog and the dog bites you. Well, you've just had an experience that's gonna inform some truth as you move on in life. Many children who get bit by a dog are incredibly cautious, fearful, and anxious around any dog. Why? Because their experience and their feelings say dogs bite. When the truth is, most dogs do not bite. Some dogs do. And so if they live their life based solely on that truth, they might actually be hindered by an opportunity to engage in some healthy uh, uh, connection with dogs in the future. Does that make sense? So they, they're like, it's a part of their truth, but it's not solely their truth. Uh, you go to a fast food restaurant. Let's just say something like Chipotle. But that one time you went to Chipotle, you got food poisoning. And so you end up feeling this way. Now, based on your feelings and based on your experience, you could be all Chipotles do is give food poisoning. Now, you would know that's not true, but your experience and your truth would lend itself to be, I'm probably not going to go back to that store again, and I may not go to Chipotles anymore because of my experience, but don't go so far to say that that's the case for all Chipotles because that wouldn't be true, even though your feelings and your experience may lead you otherwise. Let me just give you a couple more. A boy grows up in a family, and he doesn't have a father figure. So his experience, his feelings will determine and inform him what a man and father should be based on not having a father in his life. So when he grows up and he starts to encounter other families, other father figures that may be different than what he felt and he experienced, there's going to be some natural tension in his life. And so will he embrace the possibility or probability that there might be a different reality for him beyond his experience and beyond his feelings? Does this make sense? Let me give you just two quick more. Uh, you're a young adult woman who dates a guy and you fall in love. But unfortunately, he breaks your heart. He takes advantage of you and even maybe even emotionally abuses you. Your truth based on your feelings and experience could be all guys are abusive. All guys are bad. And if you based it solely on your experience and your feelings, you would be right. But you know that there are some guys that are out there that are not that way. But here's even worse. What if you internalize as a young woman that you did something as part of that, which then influences the guys that you actually choose to date because you don't think you're worthy of dating actually good guys. And so you actually find yourself in the pattern of, of making, making these same bad decisions with relationships over and over and over again because you are leading your life based on a belief, based on the truth, based on your experience and your feelings in this very hard and painful relationship. If you go one step further, maybe you were abused, molested, or even raped as a child or a teenager. That is going to create a very powerful truth based on your feelings and experiences that's gonna cause mistrust, confusion, and stress 
that you're gonna have to learn to grow through to embrace that there's something better for you that's out there beyond your feelings and your experience. We all, all in agreement now? Okay, I have this when it comes to God. So those of you who are followers of Christ, there are situations that you're gonna come that God is gonna ask you to trust him. But based on your feelings, you're gonna be like, I don't wanna trust him. I don't feel like trusting him. I feel like trusting me. Based on your experience, you've never trusted him like this before. And you're gonna have to make a decision to go beyond your truth and your feelings to say, I'm gonna trust him and what he has to say, even though I might feel or I might have experienced something differently because I believe that God has good news and that he wants what's best for me. And that can be really, really hard. Now, with that as the foundation, secondly, your truth is shaped by who you choose to follow. You think about it in your life, your truth can be based on your parents, your teachers, your friends, the culture, the media, based on what the world is saying, mentors, pastors, or as we've said before, maybe your inner self you're choosing to follow you. As a follower of Jesus, as I've said, I've chosen to say, you know, I'm gonna follow his version of truth because I believe he knows what's best. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them their, your, your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. So to sum up everything that I've said, based on your feelings and truth, I got this from Jay Jones, our executive pastor, who said, your truth limits and confines you to one reality if you base it on your feelings and experience solely. The truth, and his name is Jesus, actually frees you from the captivity of your experiences only, fear, pain, and breaks down the barriers that actually might limit you. Jesus says it this way in John chapter eight, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it's not truth just based on words on a page. That word to know is to experience personally in a relationship with him. So as I said, this is foundational, not just for today, but for the entire series to understand this balance of grace and truth. One last thing about this is how we, if you're a follower of Christ, how we deliver truth carries as much weight as the truth itself. There are so many Christians out there who spew the truth but come across very angry, resentful, and hateful in presenting the truth. You remember what used to be more popular than is today is the, the street corner guy. You know what the sign? Uh, that he would uh, be like, you're going to hell. Now, is that a true statement? Well, yeah, it may be true for a lot of people. But the very way in which he went around about telling the truth actually turned people completely off from receiving the message to which Jesus never did. He never did it that way. And I know we don't have the street corner guy anymore, but do you want to know what the modern day street corner is? Social media. I've seen so many Christians you know, that are professing you know, the truth, or as I call them, keyboard warriors, who love to spout the truth, but it's done in such a way the message isn't received because the messenger delivered it in a way that Jesus never would. And I know I'm stepping on some toes, so let me go just a little bit further. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 reminds us, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, the truth, 
who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But the verse doesn't end there. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's what he's calling us to do. Romans 2.4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Now the version says, kindness is what leads to repentance. It's not that you don't give truth. It's how we give the truth. So let me also say this. I want to talk to those of you who have identified yourself as the LGBTQ plus community. And I want to take a second to apologize for how Christians have come across. I can tell you that I'm sorry for my part, even in the presentation in previous years as a Christian as well as a pastor. We have ostracized criticized, demonized, and honestly have just not been very Christ-like to those of you who aren't followers of Jesus. And I know I'm speaking for the church and the church as a whole, but I just need to say that we are sorry and will you forgive us? I can tell you that in an attempt for our love and care, we've actually come across, unfortunately, is more hateful and resentful. The right thing done the wrong way produced the wrong result, and unfortunately, we're living in that reality. This is never, ever how Jesus responded to those far from God. Secondly, for those of you who have children, who have relatives, and they have gone through or are going through this whole LGBTQ plus conversation, I have talked to dozens of you in our church, and you have felt like this has not been a place that you can share your struggles for fear that you're going to be judged, that you did something wrong as a parent and you're struggling with these feelings. You don't even know how to react or how to respond. And I want you to let you know, moving forward, I pray that this can be a place, as it has been for so many, as you walk through what you're facing and walk through what you're going through, that we can actually walk through this together. I wonder if you realize that 75% of the LGBTQ plus community actually started in the church. Now, I know some of you who are truth tellers can immediately tell me, well, they left just like atheists used to be a part of the church. They left because they knew the truth. That's actually not what they said. What they said by and large is when they were first questioning, when they were first struggling, when they were first in their formative years, they didn't feel like the church or the people in the church were safe, were loving to go on a journey to be able to say, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm going through. So many were quick to tell the truth but they didn't experience the grace along with this. So let me back up just a bit, just to be clear. It's probably the best way that I can show you. So what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to show grace or we have a tendency to show truth. Here's what I know about all of you. Jesus was the only person who lived a perfect balance between grace and truth. Most of us lean one way or the other. Can you figure out which way you might lean? If you go to churches, You will talk and listen to the pastors, and they will also lean a little one way or the other when it comes to this idea of grace and truth. Some have made the news recently in the last few weeks, even on this issue of trying to figure out where do I fall based on grace and truth. And so here's, I want to generalize just a little bit. I know I'm, I'm speaking in general. Those of you who are 30 and under, you do this really well. You have led the way when it comes to loving, connecting, empathy, compassion, and acceptance. You have led the way for this. But what you have struggled with is this. Those of you who are over 30, 
uh, you and I have done really well with this. We know what the word says. We know what God's truth actually has to say. And we're so quick to give the answer when it comes to this. But I want to let you know there's holes on both sides. And as we go through the series, you're going to feel it one side or the other. And you're going to feel some emotion. And you're going to be like, why isn't he talking more about truth? And some of you guys are going to feel the same emotion and be like, why isn't he talking more about grace? Let me show you the holes in both of these, these, these issues. Grace without truth is destructive because it can enable harmful behavior and prevent necessary accountability and growth. See, only grace means I love you, I accept you no matter what. Imagine doing this in your household. If you have a child and the child lies to you, and you come around the child, oh, Johnny, I love you so much. You are so welcome and part of this family. You are my child. There's nothing you can do that can separate my love from you. And Johnny's like, thank you. And the next week he lies to you again. And you're confused. But Johnny, I love you. I know that you're part of this family. And we're going to show you compassion and grace. And this is going to be amazing. And Johnny smiles and gives you a big hug and then lies again. Because at some point, you have to teach Johnny the truth. And that's important. Now, conversely, truth without grace is destructive as well as it often leads to legalism, judgmentalism, and the erosion of meaningful relationships. And some of you grew under these kinds of households. Take the same example. Your child lies. So you know what? You sit down with Johnny. You say, Johnny, lying breaks trust. So I don't trust you anymore. Go to your room. All true statements. Your child steals. You know, Johnny, that 25% of those who steal have a higher percentage of going to prison, so you better watch out because you might end up in prison, so stop it. So Johnny's sitting there going, am I even part of this family anymore? I've just been told some harsh truth in my life, but I don't even know if I should be changing my last name, if I should be running away from home, if I'm even welcome here anymore, if that makes sense. So here's the challenge, is that we have to live in what I call the tension of grace and truth. We have to live in this tension. It is so much easier to be all about grace. For those of you who are younger, it is so much easier just to be able to, those who are older, it's so much easier just to spout the truth and walk off stage. It's so much easier just to tell people the truth on social media and to tell our kids the truth. What's hard is to do this. This gets exhausting. And yet this is the picture of the cross. This is grace and truth exhibited, but it's hard because you're going to live in that tension over and over and over. But do you know what's also good about tension? If we live in the tension is you actually get stronger. You get stronger in your faith as you live in this tension over and over and over. We have to have the combination because here's the combination. Grace provides the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation while truth acknowledges and addresses the issues. You need both. And if you lean one way or the other, as we go through the series, the tension is gonna be as we focus on God's word to find out if God's trying to correct us to bring us more into the middle to which where he lived, the man, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. So with that being said, let me tell you a quote by John Stott, who's one of my favorite theologians, who says, truth becomes hard, if it's not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. So let's see how Jesus did this. One day, he was teaching, and while he was teaching, this disturbance started. 
And a group of religious leaders grabbed a woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery and threw her before Jesus. Imagine being her in that moment. You know, just the shame and the guilt. And she doesn't know what's going to happen to her because then they say, hey, the law of Moses tells us that whoever's caught in adultery, they should be stoned, which they didn't actually read the law of Moses because the law of Moses actually says he and she who's caught in the act of adultery, both will be stoned. Where's the guy? So it's funny how we can kind of manipulate the truth according to our little experience. That's a whole different message. Okay, so she's laying down there. And so Jesus then begins, he begins to lay down and he starts writing things in the sand. We don't know what he's writing, but he's writing. They're getting irritated. They look back at Jesus like, Jesus, come on, give us an answer. And he looks at all of them and he says, he who is without sin shall cast the first stone. And then he goes back down and he starts writing it again. Now, what did he write? Well, my guess is he's probably writing some of the sins of the people who are actually wanting to cast stones because it was from the oldest to the youngest that they actually started to drop their stones to which left Jesus and this woman by themselves. And then he has a conversation. He stands up and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't no one condemn you? She looks around, no one, she replied. And then Jesus said, neither do I, grace, but go and sin no more, truth, right? He led perfectly when it came to the balance of grace, people were far from God, and then he always got to truth when the time, the opportunity came. So with grace and truth in our hearts, The question that we want to then answer now that this is the foundation is what is God's design when it comes to gender and sexuality? And again, with all of the grace and compassion I can give you, but following the truth of God's word, I want to make sure that I'm talking to those of you who are followers of Christ based on what he has to say. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, the most important thing you need to hear is Jesus has good news for you. He died for you. He wants a relationship with you. And as you make him savior, we make him Lord, which means we become obedient to his leading, even though we might feel or experience something differently. That's what I want you to hear of those who are not a Christian. But just to be clear, God created gender and sex. He's the one. Full of grace and truth, this is what Jesus says. Because a lot of times people say, Jesus didn't talk much about this. Oh, yeah, he did. Matthew 19, verse 4, haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made the male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now, there's three primary reasons why God created, he is the creator and the author of sex. Number one, God designed sex to bond the covenant between a husband and wife. This is what he created. Now, what scientists, health experts, and sociologists know is this. The bonding in the brain and the body during sex is largely attributed to the release of oxytocin, often referred to as the love hormone. This is not Christianity. This is what science has been able to discover, which promotes feelings of trust and emotional attachment, along with dopamine, the brain's reward system, and endorphins, creating the sense of pleasure and emotional intimacy between people. Here's what we know. It's not just a physical act. Everybody knows that. Anybody's engaged in this says it's not just a physical act. And this is what sociologists, health science people have discovered. You know what the Bible says is that word for sex 
is dodi, and it literally means a mingling of souls is what, the, what it takes to bond and connect, not just an emotional, but a spiritual level as well. That God is the one who created this as a bonding mechanism so that when people engage in this activity, that they have an emotional, spiritual, and physical connection, this two shall become one. That was the way he created and designed it, you know, so that we would have that connection with one another. That's the first reason he created sex. Secondly, God designed sex for reproduction and to start a family. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, right? This is how we have kids. Imagine if it really was the stork. That'd be a little weird. Even weirder is if you like planted something, then nine months later, pop, ah, you know, something just comes out of the ground. It was like, this is weird. You know, how did it? No, no, he made it not only the bonding thing, but he says, this is how we're gonna keep the species moving. This is why I created sex. Thirdly, and we are going there, God designed sex for pleasure and enjoyment. Song of Songs, chapter seven, verses seven to nine. From the husband to his wife, you are slender like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. I feel like a middle school kid all over again. It's awesome. May your breasts be like grape clusters and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. This is truth in God's word. This is in God's word, guys. This is what God created it for, for enjoyment, for connection, for pleasure, for reproduction. And it's not just on the male side. Look what he says to the ladies. The ladies say this from the wife to the husband, verse 11. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love and you can research what all those words mean on your own. Because ladies are just a little bit, guys are just kind of pretty black and white, and ladies are all flowery and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, I am not going to tell you what these words mean. You research on your own. The other thing I really want to make sure I mention to you guys is that you don't have to, in such a sex-charged culture, you don't have to have sex to fully be a human or to flourish as a human being. Uh, I've not done a great job to talk about even the virtue of singlehood. It's almost like, well, when do you, every time we talk to somebody, when are you going to get married? And, you know, when are you going to have kids? And when are you going to do all these things? And you're like, wait a minute. Because if, 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 it, if it fulfilled human flourishing, then Jesus didn't fulfill the purpose of humanity because he was single. He would have modeled what that looked for. The Apostle Paul wrote most of our New Testament, also single. It is a positive virtue. And for those of you who are single, I apologize for not being more clear on that point. Now, with that as the simple baseline of truth, here's also the truth. We have all felt the personal impact of sexual brokenness. All of us. When God creates, what God creates, Satan tries to distort. From the beginning, he's like, here's something good that God created, Satan's gonna try to distort it. Some people, even Christians in churches, say, well, Jesus didn't really talk about sex or sexuality. Actually, he did. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, in addition to the other verse I read, for from the heart, Jesus says, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. Jesus didn't have to list to a Jewish audience everything that he mentioned by sexual immorality. So he didn't have to mention, and this is what I mean, this is what I mean, this means. They knew their scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. They were living the New Testament. So here's what they would know. Sexual immorality is the willingness to engage in an expression of gender and sexuality that is outside of God's will and his design. That's what Jesus is meaning. 
Now, I'm speaking to those who are a follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, because this is what Jesus is referring to, because you and I are not Jewish. They would know instantly, back to Leviticus chapter 18. Verse one says, then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or the people of Canaan where I'm taking you. In other words, don't be like the culture you came from. I have something different. I have something set aside for you that I want you to experience. Well, what did they experience in Egypt? What did they experience in Canaan? We'll get to that in just a second. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey all my decrees for I am the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and regulations, you will find life, life through them. He's not trying to distort, take away. He's actually trying to find life for his people. Well, what did they experience? What did they see in Egypt? What are they gonna see with these people of Canaan? He goes through 17 different sexual immorality statements, to which I'm not gonna read them all, but let me give you kind of a baseline for what he says. He says, this is what sexual immorality is out of the 17. Don't have sex with relatives, like your mother, father, sister, brother, half-sister, granddaughter, aunt, or uncle. Don't have sex with your daughter-in-law. Don't have sex with a woman and her daughter at the same time. Don't have sex with your neighbor's wife. Don't practice homosexuality. Don't have sex with animals. Don't turn your daughter into prostitutes. Now, out of the 17 that's mentioned, only one deals with those who are same-sex. 16 of the 17 deal with heterosexual couples and the temptations that flow. That's just from uh, Leviticus chapter 17. Now, in other parts of the Bible, which I'm running out of time, we don't get to go through, would be things he would say, this is also sexual immorality. Those who have open marriages, swingers in today's day and age is what they'd be called. Also those in sexual immorality through the Bible is rape, molestation, adultery, pornography. And if something hasn't hit you yet, let me remind you of the words of Jesus. You heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guilty. So one of the things that we're being reminded before we cast the first stone, let's look in the mirror and recognize our own sexual brokenness or how we are suffering the consequences of other people's sexual brokenness. Look at your own family tree. Has there ever been a divorce? Was sex involved? Did that destroy or hurt families? If you look at how many people lived together before marriage, also sexual immorality. Was there a, a, a pregnancy outside of marriage? Now, I'm not here to throw judgment or stones. I'm just saying this is what God would say is sexual immorality. And the list goes on and on and on. In fact, time for Dan to get vulnerable with you guys. My own sexual brokenness or struggle started when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I'm gonna date myself. This is before the internet, okay? So just, to, just so you know, 10 or 11 years old, I'm on the playground, we're at recess, and about four of my guys are in a corner right near the tetherball court. So I know exactly where it was, like it's a vivid imagery, and I'm like, what's up, guys? And they're like, Danny, because that's what I was called, Danny, come check this out. So I come walking over there, and what happened is that we was in Seattle and Ballard, and the wind had blown in, and as the wind blew in, there was trash, and unknowingly, one of the boys stepped on a piece of garbage. He opened it up, and it was a Playboy, one-page picture in a Playboy magazine. And so he's looking at it, it's like, whoa, what is this? And he goes, Dan, check this out. And I look at it, I was like, I don't even know what to see, except for I knew instantly, I felt incredible excitement. And then very shortly afterwards, I felt shame. 
And then immediately after that, I'm like, we have to keep this secret. And isn't that the pattern? There's excitement with any sin. Then there's the shame, and they want to keep it secret. Think the Garden of Eden. But you can go back to that story later. And so uh, I was like, whoa, that's just crazy. I kind of want to see it again, but I don't. And I just had these mixed feelings, and I'm 11. And I'm like, I don't even know what this means and all that kind of stuff. Two weeks later, I am walking home from school. Yes, we did used to walk home from school. It was crazy, and not all of us got kidnapped, and we did walk in the snow uphill both ways. It was amazing. But we walk home and back to school. I walk with my friend Adrian, who's my best friend at the time, and I'm, this is no exaggeration whatsoever, and as we're walking home, we look, and in, the, in a pile of bushes, we see something shiny, and I walk over there, and it literally is a brand new VCR. Yep, that's how old I am. It's brand new, and we were so excited about this VCR. I'm like, can it be real? Does it work? Somebody must have thrown it away. It must not work. So I'm like, you have a TV in your room, right? He's like, yeah. So we go back to his place. We hook the whole thing up. And sure enough, it works. And we're like, man, we've got some VHS movies. We could show them. We could watch them here. It'd be so much fun after school before my mom gets here, all that kind of stuff. And then he goes, but wait, Dan, there's a, there's a tape in here. So we're like, well, what is it? We push play and it's a pornographic movie. And we just sat there on the bed. And we're just like, whoa. And that excitement I felt before was 10 times higher, followed by the shame that was 10 times greater, to which we both agreed, don't tell anybody about this, especially moms. Do not share with your mom. I'm glad your mom doesn't know my mom. And then we were going to come back, and we kept watching that for the next couple weeks until his mom found out, took it, threw it away. He got in trouble. Luckily, his mom did not know my mom, to which I was like, whew, I got to share with that awkwardly later, you know, uh, many, many years later with my mom, you know, with what was going on, which is always the worst conversation. So, but here's what I know it did. It started to teach in my brain objectivity and misogyny when it came to women. And from that point on, there was a part of me that saw women as a specific way because what was being, being portrayed and what was connected in the brain. And even since that time, there's always been the temptation of lust. Even in marriage, there's this temptation of lust that's always there that I've got to battle on a regular basis in my own heart, in my, my own life, and I know that I'm not alone. Because in this day and age, with the phones and everything that it just comes, comes flooding to you, it's one of the highest normalized thing in our society. And it's not just men. The largest demographic is women, you know, who are engaging in things like pornography. And so if you think about it in your own life, in your own sexual brokenness, that we need to first look in the mirror before we start casting stones, especially to those who are not yet connected to Jesus. But this is why we need the good news. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. He makes all things new. He restores. He redeems. He heals. He delights in forgiving sexual sin. And I know some of you have feelings for or towards some of the things that we've talked about, even as I listed them. But I want to make sure you know experiencing sexual temptations is not sinful, it's not sinful. Having a feeling, having a temptation is not sin. I have had sexual feelings, temptations, even though I'm married. That in itself is not sin because if it was, then we serve a savior who sinned all the time. And that's just not true. Because in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted he has been tempted in every way, yet the difference between him and us is that yet he did not sin. 
And that's why we can go to him because he gets us. He understands us. He empathizes and he wants to come alongside and give us the grace and as well as the truth that's gonna set us free. God's not trying to hold back anything. He created all this. He wants the best. And I know that there are major struggles and real life issues. And we're gonna spend the next three weeks looking at them even more in detail. But we're gonna wanna come with this foundation of grace and truth. First by looking in the mirror and then as we look into our families and our relationships and with others. And so some of you are saying, but Dan, what about homosexuality? What about transgenderism? What about identity? What does grace and truth look like with my child, with myself, my coworker, my neighbor, with the stores that I choose or not choose to shop in, the politicians I vote for, the people that I sit next to at church or life group I attend with? Thanks for asking. This is what we're gonna be talking about the next few weeks. This is what we're gonna be going through, how we go all through these things and how we interact with those in the church versus those not connected to Christ and what's the difference between the two. You just need to know I love you. More importantly, God loves you and he wants a deep abiding relationship with you and even with this divisive issue, Jesus, I believe to my core, is good news. He is the hope, he is the way, he is the truth for reconciliation. God is for you in this area of your life and he has a plan for you and I to experience. So as we close, what is your next step, your next step in receiving or giving grace and truth? If I were to be more specific, is there an area of your life that doesn't match with God's design for sex and sexuality, even if you might feel or you might be experienced differently? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this beginning, for this baseline for this understanding of what you came for. And I pray for everyone in this room that we would be a people and individuals, those who are followers of you, that we would truly give and receive grace and truth, first looking in the mirror. And God, if there's anyone who's not yet connected with you, I pray this would be the moment that you died for all of us, including the person who's in this room right now, deciding whether or not to follow you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.